This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we honor the year in music for 1992, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 1992. We also make the case for you to vote for Kate Bush to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And our Spotlight Museum is the Museum of Broadway in New York City. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 1992. 1992 turned out to be a watershed year for music. Nirvana's Nevermind album hit number one on Billboard's album chart, bringing grunge officially into the mainstream. 1992 was also the year that the New Kids on the Block were accused of lip-syncing at their concerts. Sinead O'Connor ripped up a photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live to protest Catholic priest abuse years ahead of when the rest of the world would finally acknowledge the abuse. Vince Neil left Motley Crue, Ronnie James Dio left Black Sabbath, Bill Wyman left the Rolling Stones, Rob Halford left Judas Priest. The Freddie Mercury tribute concert took place. Mariah Carey's Unplugged album got her career back on track. Kurt married Courtney. Whitney married Bobby. David Bowie married Iman. Michael Jackson held his Dangerous tour. And Ozzy Osbourne went on the first of his many, many, many farewell tours. Also, in Manchester, England's famous factory record label declared bankruptcy. Vibe magazine started. The recording industry stopped putting CDs into long cardboard boxes. And MP3 was actually developed. Not for music per se, but actually for video compression. Bands that formed in 1992 included the 69 Boys, The Alcoholics, Atari Teenage Riot, Blink-182, Dishwalla, Deep Forest, Collective Soul, The Cardigans, Bush, Drew Hill, Everclear, G-Love and Special Sauce, Hanson, Less Than Jake, Jamiroquai, Not A Surf, Our Lady Peace, Sixpence, None The Richer, Soul Coughing, Silverchair, P.O.D., Porno for Pyros, Puddle of Mud, Three Days Grace, Sponge, Stereophonics, Real Big Fish, Real to Real, Veruca Salt, The Verve Pipe, and The Wu-Tang Clan. Bands that either broke up before their inevitable reunions or went on hiatus included Beats International, Boogie Down Productions, The Escape Club, Europe, Fine Young Cannibals, Flesh for Lulu, Giant, The Front, JJ Fad, Johnny Hates Jazz, The KLF, MC5, UTFO, White Lion, Temple of the Dog, The Sugar Cubes, Sweet Sensation, The Tramps, and Slade. Bands that reformed in 1992 included The Tubes, Madness, and April Wine. The biggest selling album, according to Billboard magazine, was Garth Brooks's Rope in the Wind. Garth also had the sixth biggest selling album of the year with No Fences. Other best-selling albums came from Michael Jackson, Nirvana, Billy Ray Cyrus, U2, Metallica, Michael Bolton, and Criss Cross. 
The biggest selling single was Boys to Men's End of the Road. The rest of the top 10 were Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back, Criss Cross's Jump, Vanessa Williams' Save the Best for Last, TLC's Baby Baby Baby, Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven, En Vogue's My Lovin', Red Hot Chili Peppers' Under the Bridge, Color Me Bad's All for Love, and John Cicada's Just Another Day. In country music, Billy Ray Cyrus had the big-selling album with Some Gave All. Garth Brooks had Rope in the Wind, The Chase, and No Fences. Alan Jackson had A Lot About Living. Vince Gill had I Still Believe in You. Travis Tritt had Trouble, T-R-O-U-B-L-E. Catchy tune, by the way. Trisha Yearwood had Hearts in Armor. Reba McIntyre had It's Your Call. And George Strait had Pure Country. Singles-wise, though, Billy Ray Cyrus's Achy Breaky Heart was the biggest country song. Other country hits were Brooks and Dunn's Boot Scootin' Boogie, Garth Brooks's What She's Doin' Now, Colin Ray's Love Me, and also In This Life, Winona's No One Else on Earth, Reba McIntyre's Is There Life Out There, Aaron Tippin's There Ain't Nothing Wrong With the Radio, Alabama's I'm In a Hurry, and Vince Gill's I Still Believe in You. In dance music, one of the most popular trends was to remix pop ballads and turn them into dance crossover tracks, such as Whitney Houston's My Love Is Your Love and Celine Dion's If You Asked Me To. However, the big trend was the explosion of Eurodance music into the mainstream. Songs like Two Unlimited's Twilight Zone and Get Ready For This, Dr. Album's It's My Life, KWS's version of the Casey and the Sunshine Band classic Please Don't Go, and Snap's Rhythm is a Dancer, along with Rosala's 1991 hit Everybody's Free to Feel Good, which was still a huge hit in 1992, all became big hits and sports stadium hype music worldwide. 1992 in hip-hop saw albums like The Beastie Boys' Check Your Head, Criss Cross is Totally Crossed Out, Eric B. and Rakim's Don't Sweat the Technique, House of Pain's self-titled album, Arrested Development's Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life of, Sir Mix-a-Lot's Mac Daddy, EPMD's Business Never Personal, Das Effects' Dead Serious, and Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth's Mecca and the Soul Brother. Dr. Dre's The Chronic came out during the Christmas season of 1992, but became a huge hit in 1993. As far as singles went, the big ones were Criss Cross's Jump and Warm It Up, MC Hammer's Too Legit to Quit, and Adam's Groove, Ghetto Boy's Minds Playing Tricks on Me, and Arrested Development's Tennessee and People Every Day. 1992 also gave us the iconic Party Groove's Baby Got Back from Sir Mix-A-Lot and Jump Around from House of Pain. Latin artists who had a good year included John Cicada, Cheyenne, Luis Miguel, Magneto, Pandora, Alvaro Torres, Ricardo Montanier, Ana Gabriel, Bronco, La Mafia, Tito Rojas, Jerry Rivera, and Tony Vega. Artists who were born in 1992 included Selena Gomez, Cardi B, Miley Cyrus, Travis Scott, Demi Lovato, Nick Jonas of the Jonas Brothers, 21 Savage, 
Jin from BTS, Mac Miller, Lil Durk, DJ Marshmallow, Sam Smith, Rosalia, Ozuna, Annual AA, Jeanette McCurdy, Madeline Bailey, Candy Ken, and Jane Thurwall. Artists who passed away in 1992 included singers Eddie Kendricks, Shalino Sanchez, Mary Wells, Willie Dixon, Roger Miller, Roy Acuff, Carmen de la Isla, guitarist Albert King, saxophonist George Adams, composers Joe Newman and John Cage, entertainer Peter Allen, drummer Jeff Picaro of Toto, Stephanie Sargent of Seven Year Bitch, band leader Lawrence Welk, and DJ Larry Levan. At the Grammy Awards for Music of 1992, Eric Clapton's Unplugged album won Album of the Year. His song Tears in Heaven from that album won Record and Song of the Year, and Arrested Development won Best New Artist. Mariah Carey, Michael Bolton, and Michael Jackson were the big winners at the American Music Awards. Van Halen's Right Now won Video of the Year at the MTV Video Music Awards, and Garth Brooks won Artist of the Year at the Billboard Music Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest that was held in Sweden, Linda Martin from Ireland won for the song Why Me? At the Tony Awards, Crazy for You won Best Musical, and Guys and Dolls won Best Revival of a Musical. The Pulitzer Prize for Music went to Wayne Peterson's The Face of the Night, The Heart of the Dark, and Ralph Shapey's Concerto Fantastique. The 1992 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on January 21st at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, the hall inducted producer Doc Pomus, Leo Fender, inventor of the Fender electric guitar, and concert promoter Bill Graham into the non-performers category. Elmore James and Professor Longhair were inducted into the early influencers category. And in the performers category, the hall inducted Bobby Blue Bland, Booker T and the MGs, the Isley Brothers, Sam and Dave, the Yardbirds, Jimi Hendrix, and this next artist. There are certain artists who transcend their respective musical genres. Johnny Cash was one such artist. His chosen genre was country, for which he is an icon. He also had gospel, blues, and folk songs, along with some rock and roll songs from his days at Sun Studios. His rebellious rock and roll swagger earned him the nickname The Outlaw. His all-black stage outfits earned him another nickname, The Man in Black. His lifestyle was pure rock and roll. In short, Johnny Cash lived life his way. Back in the early 1960s, Johnny had a serious drug problem. He and his friend Waylon Jennings were both addicted to amphetamines and barbiturates. They took them to deal with the rigors of touring. Johnny, who was married at the time to Vivian Liberto, was also having an affair with singer June Carter, whom he had met while on tour. Those two would later get married and stay married until June's death. They were two hot flames that burned bright for each other. They were both infatuated with each other. That's the only way to describe their love. Ring of Fire, 
has one of two stories that goes with it. And which one you believe depends on which person you believe, I guess. See, according to June, she wrote the song Ring of Fire to describe the love she felt for Johnny. She knew that he was married and that he had drug problems, but she couldn't stay away from him, like a moth to a flame, so she wrote the song to describe their love. Johnny then added the mariachi horns to the song because he dreamt about a mariachi band and thought that it would be cool to add them to the song. Of course, there's also the jilted wife's version of the story. According to Vivian's book on her marriage to Johnny, June's story is, to be nice about it, fake news. Quote, to this day, it confounds me to hear the elaborate details June told of writing that song for Johnny. She didn't write that song any more than I did. The truth is, Johnny wrote that song while pilled up and drunk about a certain private female body part. All those years of her claiming she wrote it herself and she probably never knew what the song was really about. End quote. Ouch. Well, okay then. You know, for my money, I kind of prefer June's version of the story much better. In any event, June's sister Anita Carter released the song Ring of Fire as a single first on her own album. On March 25, 1963, Johnny and June recorded the song and released it on April 19, 1963. Ring of Fire went number one on the country chart and crossed over to the pop chart where it peaked at number 17. One of Johnny's greatest albums had its genesis back in the 1950s. In 1951, Staff Sergeant Johnny Cash was serving in the United States Air Force when he sat in a theater in Landsberg, Bavaria, West Germany. He and his fellow servicemen watched a movie called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. It inspired Johnny to write a song about the prison. He took parts of the song that he used from Gordon Jenkins' Crescent City Blues, for which he paid $75,000 after a copyright infringement lawsuit. Johnny was inspired to write the most famous line in the song, But I Shot a Man in Reno Just to Watch Him Die by thinking of the worst thing one human could do to another. And when Johnny left the Air Force, he recorded his song called Folsom Prison Blues in 1955. Fast forward to the mid-1960s. As the mid-1960s went on, Johnny Cash's career was in decline. For years, he had been abusing drugs, and his albums had not been selling well for a few years. He eventually got treatment for his addictions for the first time around 1967. He would then be on and off of drugs a large number of times throughout his life. In 1967, his record label changed leadership. It was at this point that Johnny decided to tell the label about his idea of performing and recording prison concerts. Johnny Cash actually started doing prison concerts back in the late 1950s, but had not recorded them for release. In fact, at one of these early prison concerts, a young man serving time for robbery saw Cash performing and decided that when he got out of prison, he would learn the guitar and make it big. He ended up being another country legend 
Merle Haggard. The record label loved the idea of recording the prison concerts. They put out inquiries to two prisons, Folsom Prison and San Quentin. Concerts were eventually held at both, but Folsom was first to say yes, so they were first up on the docket. Johnny got a band together consisting of his old Sun Records label mate and friend Carl Perkins, the country group the Statler Brothers, Luther Perkins, W.S. Holland, and Johnny's wife, of course, June Carter. After a couple of days of rehearsal, they held two concerts on January 13, 1968. One was at 9.40 in the morning and the other one was at 12.40 in the afternoon as backup in case the first one wasn't good. Turns out it was actually the second one that wasn't good as everybody was tired after the first one. In fact, only two of the songs from the second concert actually made the official album. Carl Perkins started the show with his hit, Blue Suede Shoes, then the Statler Brothers performed, and then Johnny came on stage, gave his now-famous introduction, Hello, I'm Johnny Cash, and played Folsom Prison Blues. At the line about killing a man in Reno just to watch him die, somehow, not surprisingly, the prisoners cheered and screamed. The rest of the concert went on and everybody seemed pleased with the results. The album for the concert was released in May of 1968. The album hit the pop charts first and then hit the country charts. Eventually, the album went number one on the country chart and went to number 15 on the pop chart. The only hiccup to the album happened due to bad timing. The album was gaining in popularity when Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated in June 1968 while he was running for the U.S. presidency. The record label edited the I Shot a Man in Reno line out of Folsom Prison Blues despite protests from Cash. Regardless, the album became a big hit for Cash and helped to rejuvenate his career. Coincidentally, another ex-Suns record label mate would also rejuvenate his career around that same summer with a concert. Elvis Presley with his televised concert on NBC television. For the record, Johnny's 1969 concert at San Quentin Prison album would also go to number one on the country chart. The Man in Black was officially back. Johnny would enjoy another career resurgence in the late 1990s when, with the help of producer Rick Rubin, Johnny came out with his version of modern-day rock classics, case in point his haunting take on Nine Inch Nails' song Hurt. Johnny's wife, June Carter Cash, passed away on May 15, 2003. Four months later, on September 12, 2003, Johnny Cash passed away at the age of 71. He is one of the few artists to have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Gospel Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, and the Music City Walk of Fame. Presented for induction by country music artist Lyle Lovett, The Man in Black, The Outlaw, Johnny Cash inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 1992.
Before we get to the rest of the podcast, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast. Every day we tell you what happened on that date in music history along with music releases, birthdays, and passings. So, if you like this podcast and want more music history, then please search the Music History Today podcast in audio or video form on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from. This week, we're going to make the case for you to vote for Kate Bush to be inducted into this year's class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. First off, if you've just discovered Kate Bush because her song Running Up That Hill was in the TV show Stranger Things, welcome! Where you been? For those people, here's an overview of this legendary artist. Kate Bush was born on July 30, 1958, in Bexley Heath, Kent, England. Bush is considered one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century thanks to her unique voice, eclectic music style, and pioneering approach to music videos, especially the music videos. Kate Bush is renowned for her ability to blend diverse genres from rock to pop to classical to experimental music. Her music is categorized by ethereal melodies, unconventional rhythms, and complex arrangements that blur the lines between art and pop music. Her iconic songs, such as Withering Heights, the aforementioned Running Up That Hill, and Cloud Busting, have become timeless classics and influenced generations of musicians. One of Bush's most significant contributions to music was her innovative use of technology. She was one of the first musicians, for instance, to incorporate electronic instruments, such as the Fairlight CMI synthesizer, into her music. She also experimented with sampling, layering, and looping techniques, creating a sound that was way ahead of its time. Her pioneering approach to music production paved the way for future generations of electronic musicians. Kate Bush's unique style also had a significant influence on fashion and pop culture. Her bohemian look, which is characterized by her flowing dresses uh, with the floral patterns and also her oversized jewelry, became an iconic image of the 1980s. Her influence can be seen to this very day in the fashion of other musicians such as Bjork and Florence Welsh of Florence and the Machine. Although, to be completely honest, Kate's style was also influenced by Stevie Nicks, who made that her look back in the Fleetwood Mac rumors era in the late 1970s. Kate just kind of put her own spin on it. Still, very influential. Kate Bush's success as a female musician has also been a source of inspiration for many women in the music industry. In an era completely dominated by male musicians, Bush, along with some other women, paved the way for the women of today and proved that women could be very successful and also innovative musicians. Other musicians, such as Tori Amos, P.J. Harvey, and Florence Welsh again, followed in her footsteps and created their own unique styles and sounds. 
Kate Bush's music videos were also groundbreaking in their visual storytelling and cinematic quality. Her videos, such as Running Up That Hill and Cloud Busting, incorporated elements of dance, theater, and film, creating a surreal and captivating visual experience, especially in the 1980s when music videos were not exactly known for being, well, let's be blunt, surreal and captivating. Her music videos influenced the work of other filmmakers such as Mikhail Gondry and Spike Jones, while also influencing other artists' music videos such as Sia's music video for her song Chandelier. Kate has released 10 albums so far, starting with 1978's debut album The Kick Inside, which had the song Withering Heights on it. Her last official album was 2011's 50 Words for Snow. Her biggest hit singles are Withering Heights and, of course, the aforementioned Running Up That Hill off of her biggest selling album, which was 1985's Hounds of Love. Running Up That Hill charted top three twice. Its original 1985 release made it to number three on the singles chart, while this past year, due to its popularity on Stranger Things, it went to number one, which is pretty amazing for an almost 40-year-old song to do in this day and age. Running has also been covered at least 10 times, with versions being done by Meg Myers, Mark Canham and Candy Says, and Kim Petras. Of course, since it has a dance beat, it's also been a staple at the EDM festivals, mainly because Stranger Things made it popular again. Unfortunately, that can backfire horribly. Rita Ora's version at the 2022 Rock and Rio Festival was described as, at best, deranged. And that was literally as nice as anything anybody has said about it, at least what I could find. Such is the danger of hopping on a song's bandwagon when you clearly don't know or care about the song. Isn't that right, Rita? Running Up That Hill, by the way, also made Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list. Kate also had a chart-topping duet with Peter Gabriel called Don't Give Up off of Gabriel's big-selling album, So... That's the album, by the way, that has Peter's huge hit Sledgehammer on it. So, now that you know more about Kate and the reasons why she's being considered for induction into the hall, you can now go and vote for her to be inducted. Go to rockhall.com to vote. That's R-O-C-K-H-A-L-L dot C-O-M. You can vote for five different artists once a day for about another month or so. And the link to do so is in the show notes. There's a relatively new museum in the heart of Times Square in New York City that's dedicated to the history of Broadway shows that you may not actually be aware of. The Museum of Broadway is in the heart of the Broadway Theater District in New York City at 145 West 45th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. The museum was supposed to open in 2021, but the pandemic put that little dream to bed for about a year. 
As of April 1st, the museum is supposed to be open seven days a week from 9.30 a.m. to 8 p.m., at least until winter when the hours may shift a little bit. Museumofbroadway.com is their website, and that website will be in the show note in the links. Back around 2011 or so, Lin-Manuel Miranda was coming off of a very successful production that he created called In the Heights. The show had gone on to be nominated for 13 Tony Awards, winning four of them. Of course, when faced with such a greatly successful Broadway show, you kind of left wondering, how do you possibly top that? When Lin-Manuel was going on vacation, he picked up a biography in the airport that was written by Ron Chernow called Alexander Hamilton. For some reason known only to creatives like us whose brains work like this, after reading a few chapters, he started picturing Hamilton's life as a musical, and he would give the play and the music a hip-hop soundtrack because, seriously, uh, who wouldn't? I mean, sure, that made perfect sense. N not really. Around that time, though, then-President Barack Obama was doing an event at the White House called An Evening of Poetry. He invited Lin-Manuel to perform parts of In the Heights. Lin-Manuel decided instead to road test parts of his Hamilton project, because who wouldn't want to try something brand new in front of the President of the United States and a national audience on television? No pressure. None whatsoever. Turns out, Lin-Manuel's gamble actually paid off. The response was overwhelmingly positive, so much so that he decided to continue with the project and flush it out a little bit more. In 2013, he did a workshop at Vassar College where he had most of Hamilton worked out by then. At that point, it was actually called the Hamilton Mixtape. That actually went pretty well, so he finished the musical and started an off-Broadway run with some major retweaking, including gutting most of the cast. He then moved the production off-Broadway, where it ran in previews for what seemed like forever, drawing huge word of mouth. Then, he moved it to Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater, and on August 6, 2015, after taking in almost $30 million in ticket sales during the preview alone, Hamilton officially opened on Broadway. To say that the response was positive would be the understatement of the millennium. Hamilton broke box office records and has sold out so many performances that even with Lin-Manuel and the original cast no longer there, I still don't think that you can get a ticket. It also tied the record for the most Tony Award wins, winning 11 out of 16 nominations, including Best Musical. It couldn't win all 16 nominations because some of the cast members were actually going up against each other in the same category. As far as its effect on pop culture and history goes, Hamilton actually ended up doing a lot. First off, it helped to introduce a couple of generations to a lesser-known member of the Founding Fathers. It also made Alexander Hamilton so popular that when it came time to redesign the $10 bill, 
rather than replacing him off of the bill, he was left on the bill. The musical helped to bring hip-hop to the Broadway audience, and it also gave a huge boost to the careers of the now-famous original cast members. For instance, Lin-Manuel Miranda himself has been nominated for numerous other awards for other projects, including Academy Awards for the movie Encanto. Ariana DeBose won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her role in another musical, Steven Spielberg's version of the musical West Side Story. There's also other now famous original cast members, David Diggs, Leslie Odom Jr., Anthony Ramos, Philippa Sue, Renee Elise Goldsberry, Christopher Jackson, Neil Haskell, Jonathan Groff, Jasmine Cephas Jones, and the list goes on and on. A film version of the musical was also nominated for various awards, including an Emmy and a Golden Globe Award. And the original cast album won a Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album. Hamilton the Musical and the Phenomenon officially premiered on Broadway on August 6, 2015, and mementos from the show are in the relatively new Museum of Broadway in the heart of the Broadway Theater District in Times Square in New York City. And that is it for this episode of the Music Halls of Fame podcast. For more podcast episodes, which drop every Thursday in audio and video form, then please like, subscribe, and click the notification bell on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. Music